Okay, uh, well, if you still got Isaiah open, uh, you can leave it there. If you haven't, go back to Isaiah chapter uh, 25, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off here. And, um, oh, it's going to be a fun day, guys. This is going to be, this is going to be exciting. And uh, the first thing that we, we need to talk about, and uh, you've been here recently, you know kind of where we're at. We're uh, in the middle of the book. We're rocking along here. Uh, we're probably in the next week or two. We're going to get to what um, commentators call the historic parenthesis. And it's interesting. In the midst of the prophecy and the judgment and the coming of Christ and all this, uh, Isaiah is going to pull the car over for a minute and he's going to focus in on one particular character, one particular king. Thus far, we've mostly talked about king who? Oh, I got to remember names. I know, I know. That's rough, isn't it? Uh, who, who was the king that wanted to make the alliance and run off and Ahaz, King Ahaz, uh, one of the kings of Judah. Well, one of the men to come along after him is a man named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, unlike Ahaz, uh, was mostly a faithful king who walked with God. And we're going to see this little story that's right in the middle between the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah that really captures uh, in a very personal way what the book has been all about. And you're going to love how this it's a it's a literary genius sort of thing and what you'd expect if God wrote the thing. So, um, But that's that's where we're going to go and, and you'll see that and we'll have cause to rejoice with Hezekiah uh, as you hear the story. But before we get there, we have, we have a, one more section we have to cover. And uh, so I've titled the uh, uh, section today, Woes and Worship, because that's what we're going to see. Now, one of the things you have to understand with, with Isaiah, and, and if you've been tracking with me, uh, along mostly, you understand this, okay? One of the reasons we get lost in Isaiah is we don't recognize what the prophet is doing. And, and you know, you're reading something and you think, yeah, okay, he's talking about a king, and then it's like, well, what are we even talking about now? And he's talking about the end of the world, and then he's talking about the... And you go, help me! Help me understand this difficult book. So I just want to I want to start by giving you um, a tool, and if you will utilize this tool, it will help you um, as you navigate through Isaiah. Now, how many of you would consider yourself a photographer or a person that can handle a camera? And I'm not talking about one of the, one of these babies here. I'm talking about you know something that you know has a maybe a, an actual lens on it that can be adjusted. Although I guess the new iPhone has two on it, right? I guess it's kind of okay. Three? Is that three? Okay. Um, anyway, how many how many understand photography a little bit? Okay, and, and you understand that in the in the photographic world, there there are basically two types of lenses that you can have on a camera, and these are the guys you see, you know, the camera the, the the camera's this long, and they're sitting on the sidelines. If you if you've never paid attention to this, if you watch the Super Bowl, look at the sidelines, and it's like this row of people with cameras that are you know, three feet long in some cases, these, these long lenses. So, but you understand, in the camera world, you have what's called a short lens and a long lens. And, you know, that goes back to the fact that, you know, a long lens is, say it with me, class, longer than a short lens, right? And so the short lens is what? It's the wide angle. So if, if, I, if I had a camera and I wanted to take the picture of the whole class, I would need a, an extremely wide lens, or Dave, probably even a fisheye, wouldn't you think, from this point? A fisheye lens, which 
actually blurs the corners. I guess it's the way fish see. How do they know how fish see? I don't know. They did a survey. I don't know. Ten, ten out of fish, you know, ten, nine out of ten fish agree that anyway. So it, it, it's really, really wide. And you, and you guys have seen pictures like that, right? And then a long lens, because it is longer, because all the little uh, lens elements in there, is designed to just, like, like if I want to just zoom in on Kelly or Jonathan, okay, and I, and I focus in on that, okay? And, and you know that, that some cameras actually have the ability to do both, right? So you can, you can adjust it, and it's okay, I got my wide lens, and I got lots of, lots of span here, right? And then I can turn it another way, and it tightens the shot up, and it's like, oh, I can see your nose, isn't that great? Now, here's what you need to understand. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah likes to use both a short lens and a long lens. Okay? There are times he's focusing on the group. What's going on right now? Right? What's going on in my day and time? He's looking at what's going on in his day. And then he'll adjust the camera lens of his prophecy and he'll shoot way out. I mean, far, far away. And he'll say... I want you to think about this thing that's going to happen in the future now. Okay? So you got it? He, he pivots between what's going on in my day and Isaiah's day, what's going on way down in the future. Now here's the thing that Mr. Isaiah was not so nice to do. He doesn't tell us when he's changing lenses. He doesn't say, I'm going from my wide angle to my long lens here. I'm from, from my, from my fisheye to my telephoto. I'm not, I'm not, he doesn't tell us that. And so you, the reader, are responsible as you're reading to go, oh, he just picked up his telephoto lens. He's, he's not talking about now. He's talking about some time in the future, maybe even the end of the world. Okay, you got it? And if you'll remember that as you're reading, you have to remember, okay, is he talking about something that's going to happen like in his lifetime? Or is he talking about something that's going to happen like at the end of the world? And if you remember that, you'll be able to make sense of things. Now, sometimes, I'll give you one more hint. Sometimes he does that in the same sentence. He's riding along, and you, the reader, totally oblivious that he's just put down one camera and he's picked up another one, and now he's he's shooting out way in the future. Okay, so so I'm going to call this juggling visions, or maybe I should say juggling cameras. But but here's what you got to remember: the two things he likes to talk about the most with this short-term perspective and long-term perspective is judgment. Right? He's going to talk, as you've seen, about judgment that happens now or in his lifetime okay and that's what assyria has surrounded judah and isaiah is saying you know what judgment is coming upon you just like israel if you do not repent the assyrians are going to come in uh, and destroy israel we're going to see that in isaiah's lifetime and then the babylonians are going to come in and they're going to destroy judah and take a bunch of them off into captivity that's a judgment that's going to happen now right and then he also talks about some other nations that will be judged rough, roughly within the time frame of Isaiah's lifetime. And then he's going to jump and he's going to say, and then one day God is going to judge every nation and every tribe and bring every... And we're going, what is he talking about? And what's happened was he's just zoomed from the immediate context to the future, to the end times, when God comes and he judges all people and he makes everything to be right back in its place again. So remember that. Judgment now and then judgment in the future then. That's that's the first theme where he likes this near-term and far-term perspective. The other theme, and you know this, is because it's, it's the name of our study. It's hope now, right? The hope now is one day 
one day the Assyrians will be conquered. One day the Babylonians will be conquered and I will bring you, my people, God says, back to Jerusalem, back to this very land. But that's roughly within the time frame, right? You know, the, the near term of the history. And then he's going to say, but then there's this, there's this other hope, this, this coming hope, this long-term hope where God is going to bring his king and, and we're not just gathering, you know, the people coming back from Babylon. We're bringing every tribe and tongue and nation, a restored, redeemed people, a new Jerusalem, and the Messiah will rule in what we call the millennial kingdom leading up to final judgment. Okay? So, so again, you, you gotta have your short lens and your long lens, right? And, and so keep that in mind as you're reading. And if you find yourself going, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lost, then just ask yourself, is he talking about now? Is he talking about then? And that will help you to determine a little bit of the context. Okay, is that helpful? You got that? Remember that, okay? And that will, that will really, and we're gonna see some of that today, and actually you're gonna have to put some of this to practice. Because it is, you guessed it class, an interactive class day! Yay! Right? You, uh, the, the, listen, the, the viewing audience, uh, is going to participate in the, uh, festivities that we have in the book of Isaiah today. So let, let me introduce you to the section that we're in, and then uh, you'll see what your mission is if you choose to accept it. And, of course, you will. So um, some of you have no idea what that is. Ask your parents, okay? It was a great show. And then, and then, and then Tom Cruise got involved, and then, anyway, okay, never mind. Okay, so chapter 27, chapter 27. Peter Graves, right? That was, that was the, the glory days, wasn't it, right? All right, chapter 27. Verse 1, in that day, now stop right there, what on earth is the day that we're talking about? Well, let's go back here, okay? He could be talking about something that's going to happen soon, or he could be talking about something that's going to happen then, okay? So let's keep reading and see if we can figure this out, okay? You're going to see this little phrase, in that day, several times in this section. Now, he's just been talking about this song of praise and the day of restoration. Remember, that was chapter 26, when people are restored, when they gather at the New Jerusalem, and they are ruled by the Messiah. So it would make sense in context that that in that day is probably picturing what? Something down the road, not necessarily something that's going to be immediate, right? That would be our guess based on the context. Now, in that day, the Lord will punish... What's your Bible say? Anybody have a different version? Leviathan. uh, The fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And we go, what? I get praise to God. I get restored people. I, I get every tribe and tongue and nation. And, you know, now we're in like some dinosaur cartoon here. What is this going on? Um, well, Leviathan, you, you see this creature show up in the Bible. What's, what's a couple of the other books that we see this show up in? Do you remember? Job. Book of Job is the main one where we hear about this. And um, Leviathan, we actually get a description of him in the book of Job, and we won't take the time to do that. You can... You can uh, turn back there and, and, and look that up on your own time if you if you like. But um, Leviathan describes a creature that uh, matches, frankly, with some of the dinosaur descriptions that paleontologists tell us about, particularly those uh, dinosaurs that inhabited the sea. 
Okay, so one theory is that this is a sea uh, uh, navigating dinosaur that has since died out as far as we know. Uh, the other option, and this is represented in the literature also, is that Leviathan was a, a mythical sea dragon kind of creature. And, uh, and it actually, it could be both because we know dinosaurs really existed. Uh, we know God created all creatures according to Genesis and so they, they were on this planet at some point. They died off at some point. We, we don't know why. Uh, it was not of course, millions and millions of years, because the Bible tells us that dinosaurs and people actually inhabited um, the planet at the same time. Um, so it could be that, that the, the mythology that was present in Isaiah's day about these creatures was not just made up stuff, but was actually a mythology from the time when the dinosaurs existed. And the mythology carried that on as, as a legend of some sort. So in any case, what, what we have here is a description of a, a creature, and uh, it's described as the fleeing serpent, and then we have another one called a twisted serpent, and then we have a dragon who lives in the sea. Now that could be three ways of talking about the same creature. could be three different creatures, and I think the context actually points itself to being three different creatures. You say, why is that? Because... The fleeing serpent, the twisted serpent, the dragon, probably are references to the three nations that are in the context, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And if you look down at verse 13, we hear of uh, two of those three in the immediate context. Verse 13 tells us that in that day, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So still envisioning that day where people are gathered back to Jerusalem, the three national threats, right? The, 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 the three nations that were threatening the people, uh, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt are pictured here as this creature. That, that could be, and there's, there's other ways to take it, but I think that, that fits the context best. So what's he saying? He's saying in that day, the Lord will punish who? Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria, and finally bring about a deliverance. And that's what we see in verses 2 and following. Look at this. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. So someone should give me briars and thorns in a battle. Then I would step on them and I would burn them completely. Or let him... Rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Judah or Jacob will take root. Israel will <clears throat> blossom and sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Now, what does that sound like? That is the fulfillment of a covenant that God made with who? Uh, not Adam, although that's a good thought. And look at it again. That's a good guess, but look at it again. It's Israel will blossom, Jacob will take root, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. It's the Abrahamic covenant, right? Uh, I will make you a great nation, God told Abraham, right? I will make you a great people, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And a couple chapters later he says, Abraham, look up the stars. You see them? Yeah, I see them. Can you count them? No, I can't count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And that's the fulfillment in this verse. Isaiah is saying, look, 
Israel has has brought fruit for in the whole world. And, and that's that's the neat part of this is we're not just seeing, you know, some interesting little deliverance where God gathers his people. and everything. We're seeing the fulfillment of the promise of covenant that was given to Abraham way, way back in Genesis chapter 12. So that's what's going on here. Verse seven, like the striking of him who has struck them and has he struck them or like the slaughter of his slain. Have they been slain? You contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Israel's future restoration. That's what we're seeing here. Uh, therefore, verse 9, through, the, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be, this is interesting, listen closely to this. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when the asherim and incense altars will not stand, for the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry and they are broken off, women come and make a fire with them. They are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. But... In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Let, let, me, let me stop there because it's a little bit confusing. What's he saying? Isaiah saying this. Israel will be forgiven, but there are some things that have to happen first. And he gives this graphic picture of Jerusalem being utterly destroyed, right? The walls are down and, you know, cattle are grazing where the temple used to... I mean, this picture that this judgment will come upon Jerusalem, that discipline that has been promised all throughout the book of Isaiah, that discipline will come and then what? And then God will gather them back and he'll restore his people and he'll forgive them uh, at that moment. And uh, they'll be gathered up, verse 12 says, and it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria will be scattered and the land of Egypt will come. And what are they going to do? They're going to worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Okay? And that's that vision then of the restoration. Now, you got it? Okay, so we've got this judgment and restoration. It's the pivot themes that we've seen throughout the book. And now, this this is really an interesting part, and we're calling this woes and worship. What he's going to do now is in five different sections, he's going to pronounce woes upon different countries, different peoples, similar to what we saw in the previous section. But in each each time, and, and, and for those of you that may not understand that, a woe is, is a biblical pronouncement of judgment. Right, a woe is saying bad things are about to happen to you because of your sin. So that's what that is. But here's what's neat: with this, with this pronouncement of judgment, what we see is yes, this judgment is coming. But here's what's coming after that. Here's the promise of salvation. Here's the promise of deliverance if you will turn to the Lord. And though his wrath is for a moment, right? His judgment is for a moment, yet his loving kindness and compassion call you back. And so that there's a future here, a future of a redeemed people who will worship God, a, a, a future of worship and hope. So, so here's the exercise we're going to do. I'm going to break you up and each, each of you are going to look at one of those sections. 
And what you're going to do is you're going to identify what's the judgment, right? And then what's the hope? What's the worship that's built in here? And I want you to see this because, again, this is what the whole book is about. The whole book is your sin, Isaiah, your sin, Jacob, your sin, Judah, is so serious that judgment is coming. And yet God says, I am faithful, I am merciful, I am making a way for you to be forgiven and restored, and through my servant, the coming king, there will be a future day of restoration for all who put their hope in him. Okay, But you're going to see that. Woe and worship. And as you study this, the reason I want you to do this is, this is one of those sections where we see both the kindness and severity of God. And you know, that's what this book is about. We're trying to see who God is. He is incredibly kind, isn't he? Patient, compassionate. But he hates sin. And he is severe in his punishment and judgment of that sin. And as we come to know who God is, we have to hold both of those characteristics in our mind. Or we miss who God really is. Okay, you with me? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Um, Oh, let's do this. So, so this section right here, these six tables, you guys are going to do uh, uh, chapter 28, verses 1 and following. Okay? Yeah, you guys right there. Okay? The middle six tables right here, you guys are going to do chapter 29, verses 1 and following. Okay? Six tables right here, you guys are going to do, you guessed it, chapter 30, verses 1 and following. Okay? And then back row people, you know, the Baptists in the back there sitting next to the wall, uh, you guys are going to do 31 to 1, okay? 31 1 and following. And then the back row Baptist over here, over here on the back wall in Regine, you guys are going to do 33 uh, verse 1 and following, okay? You can talk with each other. You have people around you. Uh, we learn better when we interact. So if you want to talk to your spouse or your family who's sitting next to you, do that, huddle up. I'm going to give you about, oh, five or ten minutes to read the section. And what are you looking for? You're looking for woes, right? But you're also looking for worship and hope with a view to understanding who God is, okay? Look for the woes, look for the hope, and tell me what you learn about God, okay? Ready, set, go. Okay. Do you know, do you know what it does to a pastor's heart to hear everybody studying the Bible with each other? I mean, that's, that's just, Dave and Cece, you know, and you t- teach Bible classes, you understand that feeling, so. Okay, so um, let's let's do our, our class reports here. And again, the, the reason we're doing this is this is a hard book. And, and what we're trying to do in Isaiah is to learn how to read this book and understand it. So getting to do that together in this context will help us grow in that skill. And, and, and let me give you another hint, too. There's so many details and metaphors and stuff. And don't get bogged down on the one phrase you can't figure out. Read the section, look for the big picture, look for the themes. We know what the themes are. You just have to find how they're being expressed, and that will help you to see the intent of the author, okay? Uh, sometimes when we focus too much on that one little word or one little phrase we can't type, figure out, we spend all our time on that, and, and we don't get anywhere, and we go, oh, that was, that was worthless, right? So don't, don't do that. Read, read in the big picture. Okay, so 28.1 is uh, the first section here, so... Uh, everybody else is going to take notes. Okay, this is the section on Ephraim. Okay, so you can uh, take notes as uh, our, our six tables over here report in, the Ephraim tables. 
what judgments or woes did you hear and what moments of worship and hope that help us to see see God better in this? What'd you come up with? Yeah, their pride. Did you notice that? And they were caught up on the things of this world. They were. Yep. And that's that's really the first section there, right? They're, they're, uh, verse 3, The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot, right? They're caught up in the wrong things and their pride. Okay, very good. What else did you see? This is your big moment, guys. So jump right in. Don't be don't be shy. Ah, ah, that's right. So in chapter, that's right. Yeah. So Carl is correct. In verse fourteen, there's a shift from Ephraim, the northern kingdom, to Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, you see that there. And both of them were doing wrong things, but they were different. And so he addresses both of them there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, drunk priests and prophets is a problem, isn't it? Right? And remember, remember, there was a whole section we saw about a month ago before uh, we did our Christmas uh, messages on the prophets and the, pre- the leaders of Israel are the, are the big problem. They're leading the people astray because they're corrupt. Okay, good. That, that deserves a woe, doesn't it? Yeah. You think addiction is a modern problem? Okay, so give me some hope here. We gotta, we gotta keep moving. So, where's the hope in chapter 28 in terms of what's God gonna do? Who is He? And how's He gonna, He's gonna help these, these dear people that are caught up in sin? Yes. Yes, verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Very good. Excellent. We get hope in the counsel of the Lord, right? That's what Isaiah is bringing. You guys, you see how relevant this is? Listen to what God says in the Bible. Believe it and do it and then you get what? Hope. That's it. It's a different context, sure it is. Is the council still right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, did, did any of you get the verse? There's a verse here, and as soon as we read it, you'll say, "Oh, that's in the New Testament somewhere." Did you find it? Yeah, yeah. Look at verse 16. Everybody, everybody, look at this. Okay, 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone. For the foundation firmly placed, and who, this is interesting, who, he who believes in it will not be disturbed, not disappointed, not let down. And uh, we know, because Isaiah has already told us, that that's one more reference to this coming servant, this coming king. And of course, Peter, right, later on in his epistle, is going to flat out tell us, who are we talking about here? This is the Messiah, isn't it? Okay, so there you say, where did that come from? It came from Isaiah. See, if you don't know Isaiah, you don't know what Peter's talking about, because this is something that was long promised. Okay, any other hope? Any any other character of God moments here that we see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that's a, that's a reference to the same restoration, right? The regathering of people where God, uh, the Messiah is their king, bringing about justice and, and glory in the nation. So, all right. Well, hey, didn't they do a good job? Good job. Okay. See, guys, you can do this. You can do this. You can read a difficult prophetic book if you, if you know what you're looking for. Right? And it's like, yeah. And that, that's how you need to read. That, that's how you enhance your Bible study this year. Know the book well enough to know what you're reading for and then read it. Don't get caught up in the details. See the themes. And just as we've seen, they're, they're very, very relevant, aren't they? Okay. Uh, you guys are 29, right? So we got, uh, 29 is next. And that's our middle tables right here. Um, the bar's been set high, right? Been set high. Um, now, first of all, who is Ariel? That's the first thing we have. What's that? Yeah, it's, an, it's another reference uh, to the Jews, right? Specifically to, to Judah. So this continues the discussion that was started in 2814, but it's sort of a, a new chapter. So what did you guys come up with in terms of judgments and also worship and hope as we think about the character of God? Yes, yes. Uh, is partying still a problem in our culture? <laughs> this was written in the 7th century, and we're still here. Uh, camp- college campuses everywhere can benefit from this, right? Okay, that's right. And, and, and maybe the, the difference is they're turning religious festivals into drunken, corrupted, you know, horrible things. So, okay. What else do you see? Thirteen? What's thirteen say? Yes. That's right. Yeah, they're convicted, right? That's right. Yeah. So now, do you recognize this one? Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. But what? What does the New Testament say? Their heart is far from me, right? The, the original version says, but they remove their hearts far from me. Now, th- this is convicting. This is like a dagger. Uh, if you're even remotely understanding what he's saying here to any of us. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Do you, do I ever struggle with going through the motions Christianity. Right? Is this not a relevant book? God says what? Um, Judgment is coming, right? Why? Because we're confessing with our mouths, we're honoring with our lips, but our heart is not engaged. We're going through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. He, he says, he says, you guys have been doing this so long. It's like your heart is spiritually illiterate. Yeah. And we, we struggle with that, right? I agree with John. I think that's a daily struggle for most of us. We read our Bible. Why? Cause we're supposed to. That's what we always do at six in the morning or eight at night or whatever. Right. They make excuses. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, that's right. We do. Any information, any background, um, so if we're shallow, it's because mm-hmm. we choose to be. That's right. Yeah. yeah, you know, one of the things that this book screams, and I'm just going to say it, you know this, but it's an underlining, highlighting moment. God wants your heart, doesn't he? He wants our hearts. He wants a heart that loves him and trusts him and walks with him. Is that going to be perfect? No. This side of heaven, it's not going to be perfect. But he wants a genuineness and a sincerity. Not, not a religious ritual. Not, not, a, not a habit of, of thoughtless motions of, of religious uh, tradition. He wants our heart. And that was the problem with the Israelites. It wasn't that they weren't doing religious things. It's that in their heart, they didn't love God. And here we are, struggling with the same things today, aren't we? Notice, uh, just for sake of time, verse 16, because this, this act, actually, Pastor Terry, uh, uh, this is a reference from the section Pastor Terry is in Romans. Uh, Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? And that what is made would say it, its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed, say to him who formed it? Has he no understanding? Uh, one of you mentioned narcissism in your prayer request. I think, I think John mentioned that. You know, guy doesn't trust Christ because, you know, he's just big on himself. Do you, do you see what they're saying? That's what people are doing. They're, they're saying, I'm equal with God. I can contend with the potter who made me the clay. Well, that, that's the heart of narcissism, isn't it? And that's part of their problem. Their view of themselves was too big and their view of God was too small. Okay, guys, well, we need some hope here. Where's the hope in this text? Where do you find it? Yes. And the humble will rejoice in the Lord. 22, Jacob shall now not be ashamed. Verse 23, when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. And here's the, here's the hope, guys. And will stand in awe of the God of Israel. A couple verses before, they were standing in awe of themselves, and they were looking down on the God of Israel. Now they're looking down on themselves, and they're standing in awe of the God of Israel. That's God's work in the heart, isn't it? And, and the fact that God puts up with this, let's personalize it, that he puts up with us is incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. Okay, uh, who's got uh, 30 over here in the corner? Yeah, the, the, the wing over here. Uh, so woes and worship, you know the drill. This is the rebellious children. What a, Excellent. Good analysis. Now, let me ask you this, okay? And I'm, not, I'm really not trying to get in your kitchen too much. Isaiah is getting in your kitchen today. Uh, do you ever struggle to rely on counsel other than the Bible, other than God's word? God says this, but it sure seems like this is the better way to go. 
Never struggle with that? Right? God's word says this, but if I do this other thing, my problem might be solved. I might find more immediate hope or relief or, right? You struggle with that? Guess what? They did too. That's the exact same thing, right? So, so where are you getting your counsel? And then are we not those who flee to Egypt? Don't we do that? When we don't lean on God's counsel, when we're leaning on other you know, advice and we Googled it and, and this blog and this person and this talk show and, right? And, and, and that's all sending us down the wrong road of counsel. What do we do with our, our steps then? Where do we flee for help? We go to Egypt. Now, I like Egypt and you like Egypt too. It's, it's not, you know, we're not being anti-Egypt here. It's that what? We're fleeing where? We're going Away from God, we're saying, hey, maybe this is my refuge that can help me. It just happened to be Egypt in the day. But you and I do the same thing, don't we? So here, here's the question of the day. What are your Egypts? Where... Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Where where are we don't wait on the Lord to solve the problem as soon as we see a problem we're trying to find a solution which usually involves organizing a political party or it's it's epidemic. If we just control the government then we can make this a righteous society to fix all its problems and there'd be no issues. That's right. Right, right. Now, 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 Dave, you're getting a little too personal. So let's let's knock that off now. So no, no, he's right. He's isn't he right? It's an election year. If the right person, right, then I'd have. There's no salvation in men. Yeah, let, let let's not flee to Egypt. Let's trust in the Lord. Let's listen to his counsel and not man's wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yep. Get out of the way. Yeah. 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 There's some sarcasm here, isn't there? Do you guys know there's such a thing as a divinely inspired sarcasm? It's in the Bible. Uh, Job is one of the most sarcastic books in the whole Bible, in my opinion. Um. So where's the hope? Look at 18. Therefore, the Lord, what's your Bible say? Is that what you, is that how you would respond if you had people not listening to you, even though you're the potter and they're the clay, you're God and they're the creature. Is that how you would respond if people were not listening to you and running away from you to enemies for help instead of to God? Do you guys see that in the midst of rebellion and turning away and going through the motions of Christianity and, and hearts that are far from God while we come to church and, and turning to all the wrong places for help and hope and listening to all the wrong people for help and hope? You know what God says? I long for the day that you'll come to me so I can show grace to you. Do you see the heart of God here? 
How do you explain that? That no matter how far we walk away, no matter how many times we put our finger in his face and say, I've got a better plan. He says, I long to show you grace. Will you come back? And therefore, he waits on high. Why? To have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And how blessed are all those who long for him. Isn't that beautiful? You know, maybe like me, sometimes you go, I blew it one more time. Went down the exact same road of turning to the wrong thing. Will he take me back one more time? He, he will. He always does. And this is, this is, guys, this is a message that people need to hear. This is a message we need to hear. Mike. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, back row folks, we need to breeze through this here. What'd you come up with in uh, 32 and 33? We'll do this as a combined effort here. Shout it out. I'm sorry, 31 and 33. That's right, 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt, right? They're going to the wrong place. And what are they relying on? Human answers, right? Like horses and chariots. Um, and in contrast, uh, uh, Weldon, what does that, what's the second part of that verse say? Is it okay to have a horse? Is it okay to own a chariot even if it's a Ford? Chariot? Sure it is. Nothing wrong with that. But don't let it replace God as your hope. That's his point, right? Okay, what else? We need to get some chapter 33 representation over here, so jump in, guys. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet in the midst of that, look at 33.2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. So you're right. There's, there's this picture of the destroyer, of the, of the judgment, and yet there's this recognition, I need, I need him. I, I need to... I need his grace. I need him to, to intervene. And I love 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I be, will be lifted up in both judgment and in hope. Look down at verse 21. But there the majestic one, the Lord, will be with us, a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go. 
Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. That's right. We'll see the king. That's right. That's right. So guys, what do we get all what do we get out of all this? We got to land the plane here. Um, uh, we've seen the, the the same themes and patterns and, and and the verse that comes to mind as we conclude is behold the kindness and severity of God, right? When we turn away from him, when we ignore the poor and take advantage of the widow and don't care about justice and go through the motions of, of religion and uh, are corrupt in our speech and our practices and even our leaders are getting drunk and, and carrying on in, in all sorts of corruption, that God is a severe God. His judgment is coming upon even his own people and all of his creation. And yet, what have we seen? In the midst of this, in the midst of judgment, he says, I long to show grace to you. The goal is that your eyes would see the king. Will you turn back to him? Will you trust him? Will you engage your heart in a walk with him and not a tradition of of rote habit? That's what God is looking for. And he's patient and he's kind beyond anything we can comprehend. And uh, that, that's, that's the message of Isaiah to his people. That's what we need to hear, isn't it? Let's not go through the motions. Let's see the compassion and grace of God and engage our heart and walk with him and know that we can walk a thousand steps away from him and it's one step back in trust and repentance and, and turning to him and to rely on him. And what, what a God we have. What, what God is like, like this. Um, Lord, let's let, let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that in the midst of the exposure of our corrupt hearts as revealed in the mirror of Isaiah, that you love us and you long to show us grace and restoration. Uh, Lord, we, we may not have Egypt to hope in, but we have Egypts in our heart that would draw us away from you. Uh, we can go through the motions. Uh, we, we can not engage our heart. We can listen to false counsel. Lord, help us to repent and to come to you, the fountain of living water, the one who is a true refuge and strength, to listen to you and trust you and walk with you as we are overwhelmed with grace upon grace, that even when we turn away, uh, you long to extend your hand of grace in, in a restored fellowship with you. Lord, help us to walk in these things and to just stand in awe once again of who you are. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Messiah. And I thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.